he was asking of them that they would be totally devoted followers of God who had left heaven and come to this earth to die on a cross to give us the gift of the forgiveness of our sins forever. But then he would call his disciples to follow him and we would be willing even to die for his glory. What does it really mean to follow Jesus with all of our hearts? This is Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. In the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus' disciples complained that his teaching was too hard. So how are we to respond to some of the difficult teachings from Christ? At the time this sermon was given, David had been teaching and preaching for several consecutive days and was struggling with a bout of laryngitis. Here's David with a message called, The True Cost of Discipleship. In order to understand the verses I'm going to give to you today from John the sixth chapter, verses 60 through 71, you really need to know the context. In fact, the whole context is John the sixth chapter. Jesus had just fed 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish. That means he fed about 15 to 20,000 people. Now think in terms of the Spectrum Center uptown in Charlotte. That holds about 18,000 plus people. That's how many people Jesus fed with five loaves and two fish. And when the people saw the free meals that they were getting from him, they wanted to follow Jesus and hear everything that he had to say. That night, Jesus pushed his disciples in the boat to go four miles across the Sea of Galilee to the other side of the sea. And then Jesus went on a mountain to pray. He looked out and saw his disciples in a storm, furiously and in contrariness to the storm, rowing. He went to them and rescued them and then got them to the other side. The next day, the people who couldn't find Jesus wondered where he was and heard that he'd gone to the other side with his disciples, got in boats and went the four-mile trek to the other side to find him. They did find him. And it was at this moment that he began to give them some of his richest, deepest teachings in all of the Bible. Over the last several weeks, we've discovered what those teachings were in John, the sixth chapter. Uh, Last week, we saw more particularly how Jesus told them that he was God, very clearly that he was God, and that he was the way to eternal life. And then more so, he said, thirdly, that when people ate of his flesh and drank of his blood, they would prove to be his true followers. And by that statement, he was basically saying that as he would be willing to go to the cross and have his broken flesh on the cross and his blood poured out on that cross to forgive us of our sins, if people ingested his life, they would, must be willing to die themselves. They must be willing to follow Jesus even to the point of their own deaths on crosses if that was what Jesus desired. So he made it very clear what he was asking of them, that they would be totally devoted followers of God in human flesh who had left heaven and come to this earth to die on a cross to give us the gift of the forgiveness of our sins forever. But then he would call his disciples to follow him and we would be willing even to die for his glory. Now, with that in mind, Jesus continues his teaching in verse 60. Here's what he said. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. I guess so. That word hard in the Greek is scleros. It's the word in which we get sclerosis. It means really hard. This was a hard teaching for them to understand that Jesus was God in human flesh, 
that he would die for the forgiveness of their sins and that anyone who wanted to follow after him must be willing to die themselves for his cause. This is a hard saying, they said to themselves. Who can listen to it? They couldn't understand it. They didn't believe it. It was really hard for them to understand and listen to. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling. So these 15 to 20,000 people were grumbling in their hearts. They weren't actually saying a whole lot outside, but they were grumbling in their hearts. And we know from our study in John, the second chapter, verses 22 through 25, that Jesus had the supernatural ability as God to look into human hearts and see what people were actually thinking. So he knew they were grumbling. He knew they were complaining. He knew they were doubting. He knew they didn't really know what he was talking about when earlier he had said that he'd been sent from the Father, that he came down, that he was God in human flesh, that he was going to die on a cross to forgive them of their sins, to give them the gift of eternal life, and even more importantly, that if they drank of his blood and ate of his flesh, they would ingest him and be willing to give everything for him in this world. He saw in their hearts that they really didn't get this, that they were grumbling and complaining within. So he asked the question, do you take offense at this? And folks, that question's not just for those 15 to 20,000 people who were following Jesus at this point. It's also for you and me. Do you take offense at the fact that God says very clearly, I send my son to die on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. And the only way you have the gift of eternal life is by grace through faith. Do you believe that? Is that an offense to you? If it's an offense to you, it's probably because you think by your own efforts, you can work your way into heaven and receive God's favor. Paul later says in one of the letters he writes in the New Testament to a certain church that the whole gospel of Jesus Christ is an offense to the Jews. And that word offense means stumbling block. Why is it a stumbling block to the Jews? Because they thought they could, through their own human effort in obedience to the law, earn God's favor. He also said it's a stumbling block to the Greeks. That whole stumbling block idea means that it was a scandal to them. They would trip over it. Why to the Greeks? Because they were so intellectually driven, they could never grasp the idea that God just simply loved this world so much he sent his son into the world to die on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins. So the Jews find it uh, an idea that is something they can't understand, as did the Greeks themselves. Jesus asked that question to these 15 to 20,000 and to us as well. Is this an offense to you? Do you trip over this? Is this something that causes your heart to swell up in antagonistic pride and say, no, I don't believe that a Jewish carpenter who died on a cross 2,000 years ago is God's necessary atonement for the forgiveness of my sins and the gift of eternal life? The gospel is an offense to people who are going to hell. It's an offense because of their human pride. They think they still can earn through their own human effort the gift of eternal life, and it just can't happen. Jesus looked into their hearts. He looks into our hearts and asks us the same questions. Is this an offense to you? Then verse 62, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? 
This is very intriguing because Jesus knew they were offended partly by his claim that he was God in human flesh. So he takes a step outward into his life and looks ahead after his death and resurrection to his ascension. And he says, well, what if you saw me who came down from heaven one day ascending back to the very place from where I came? Would that convince you that I'm God? And we, of course, know in the Bible that in Acts, the first chapter, his disciples gathered around him after his many different resurrection appearances, and they saw him ascend to heaven, and the angels who were still there said to them, the one who ascended to heaven will come back again and claim this world as his own. That was Jesus' clear teaching. And here he's asking the question to them, well, you don't believe I'm God in human flesh. Well, if you saw me ascend back to where I came from, would that convince you that I'm God in human flesh? It, of course, was an unanswered question at this point because it had not yet happened to them. Then he says something fascinating in verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Now, in the Bible, the term flesh means your body, your soul, and your spirit, or more specifically, your mind, your will, and your emotions. Your, your flesh basically encapsulates your own human effort. Your, again, thought life, your choices in your life, and your emotional experiences. And most people today live by the flesh. They live according to their own wants, desires, choices, and the feelings that drive them. But Jesus said the flesh doesn't give life. And folks, that's so true. A nation that's driven by its fleshly desires, making itself the highest intellect of the universe, making its own understanding of right choices, what should be done, making emotions the reason you make rational decisions about how you should live. Any nation that relies upon the flesh is going to die. It has to because it's replaced God with our own intellect, our own will, and our own emotions being that which define reality. Jesus here says very clearly, only the Spirit gives life. Only someone guided by the Holy Spirit has life. He's referring here back to John, the third chapter, when he brought Nicodemus, the very famous rabbi, into his presence, and he said to him, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What's he saying? Unless your spirit life is indwelt by and empowered by the Holy Spirit, only then can you have true life like God intends you to have. That means then that your mind is under the control of the Holy Spirit. You start thinking the thoughts that God wants you to think. Then you start making choices according to the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within you. You choose to the will of God over your own will. You want his will above all else. And again, the spirit is what drives you to make right choices. And then your emotions rightly follow. When your mind is the mind of Christ and you are choosing to do his will above all else, then your emotions will follow. What we have in our culture now is emotions driving everything. And whatever we feel, that's what we believe. But if you are driving yourself by your emotions, you are changing every day, going up and down with whatever you feel. 
Your feelings must be driven by a Christ-centered thought life and a Christ-centered choice life. And then you will have the true life that Jesus wants you to have. Yes, sometimes he makes guardrails on our life's path, but guardrails on a highway are to protect you from going off the ledge. The same is true with Jesus. He wants to give you guardrails, his moral law to guide you in your life. He wants to give you God's will for your life and his decisions for you. And when you drive down his road with those guardrails, you're safe. And that kind of true life is what he wants to give you as well. Here he's trying to tell the multitudes, don't live by your own will, your own emotions, your own intellect. Live by the spirit who will guide you into what true life will be. Verse 64 But there are some of you who do not believe. Again, Jesus was able to look into the hearts of all of the multitudes who were following him. And he could see that many of them had the greatest sin of all. Folks, you do know, don't you, what the greatest of all sins is. What is it? It's unbelief. It's unbelief. That a lack of faith is the greatest of all sins. Jesus wants us to have a total devotion to him, to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, to completely trust him in every single area of our lives. And when we have that kind of faith, we can trust him to have the life he wants us to have, an eternal life like we've never known it before. But here he looked into people's hearts and he saw that they really didn't believe. Why? They were following him for the show. They were following him for his healings that he gave them. And more importantly, they were following for his food. The free food he gave them, feeding the fifteen to 20,000 with five loaves and two fish, free of charge. They wanted to keep getting fed. And if you remember correctly, they then wanted to crown him king. They wanted to make him king over all of Israel, A, to drive out Rome and all of its oppression, but B, to reestablish David's kingdom when David ruled over that area of the world and it was prestigious and powerful and pompous in every possible way. And Jesus knew he did not come to be an earthly king. He came to be a spiritual king of the heart. He came to have his Holy Spirit birthed within us and enthrone himself in our hearts and take control over our mind, our will, and our emotions. And we live in the freedom of loving him every single day of our lives. But many of the people, again, did not believe in that. And Jesus then said to them, I really see what's going on in your heart. The true sin that you have is you don't believe. You don't really believe I'm God. You don't really believe I came from heaven to die on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. And you really don't believe that I can give you life like you've never had it before. And you really don't want to follow me, even willing to give up your life in every possible way. Jesus continues, For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it would betray him. So Jesus knew when he said, many of you don't believe who it would be that would not follow him faithfully from the very beginning. And that included even one in his own 12 whom he chose. There would be one who would betray him. We'll see in a moment who that is. But let me just make a quick statement to any of you out there who have had somebody reject you and betray you someone who is close to you. There is no greater pain in the world than to have somebody betray you, especially someone you trusted. Just know that Jesus had within his 12 people whom he chose, one who betrayed him. 
And I love that verse in the book of Hebrews that says Jesus was tempted at every place just like we were, but he did not sin. He knows every negative emotion we've ever been through, and he feels it when we go through it as well. So if you've been through rejection, if you've been through betrayal, he knows what that feels like. And as he lives inside of you, he's walking with you through it, and he's whispering to your soul, I understand. I know what you're feeling. I know how hurtful this is to have someone that you call to be close to you who betrays you. Just know that the one who calls himself Lord of the universe lives inside of you and is walking with you amidst that betrayal. And Jesus said, this is why I told you that no one can come to you unless it is granted him by the Father. So Jesus retreats to a previous teaching that we covered last week and the week before where he said, just remember that no one can come to me unless the Father first allows that person to come to the Son. It's the whole doctrine of election that the Father in heaven is the one who chooses us and he's the one who gives us to the Son as believers in him, which again allows all of you to ask the question, what about that choosing of Jesus ourselves. And last week we looked at that. Whoever believes in him is given the gift of eternal life. Both are there, the Father's sovereign choice of us, and we've got to be a whosoever who makes that decision. They are two truths taught mysteriously in the Bible alongside one another, but ultimately, if God's the one who chooses us, that means we're the ones dead in our sins and trespasses, and he gets all the glory in choosing us. So Jesus makes it clear here that those who don't believe Really, the Father is the one who's calling people to believe in his Son and then gives them to the Son as a gift from the Father. Verse 66. Now, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Many of his disciples, of that 15 and 20,000, left him and were never to be seen again as his followers. listening to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Coming up, David and I discuss his latest Davidism. We'll be right back. What do you do when you begin drinking at ages 10 to 12? Where can your life go when you started abusing drugs at ages 13 to 15? You want to be part of the fabric of society, yet you emotionally stop maturing the day your addiction took over your life at the tender age of 12. I'm Tony Marciano, President and CEO of Charlotte Rescue Mission, and we have served people who have stood at the intersection of homelessness and addiction for well over 80 years. But what is it that they really need? Well, beyond building a foundation of long-term sobriety in their life, how does one obtain the life skills they never learned but desperately need to thrive in society? You know, they should have learned them growing up, but now they're an adult. What do they do? And where do they go? Let me tell you where they come. Community Matters Cafe is more than just good food and house-roasted coffee. It's an extension program of Charlotte Rescue Mission that is transforming lives. The Rescue Mission provides free, Christian, residential, high-quality substance abuse recovery programs to members of our community. You know, and after men and women graduate from Charlotte Rescue Mission's 120-day Rebound Men's and Dove's Nest Women's Residential Programs, they have the option to enroll in the Life Skills Program at Community Matters Cafe. And during the six-month program, 
students learn a variety of critical skills in a restaurant setting that help them get and keep long-term employment. Community Matters Cafe is located diagonally opposite the Panther practice fields at the corner of Cedar and West First Street. Charlotte Rescue Mission is grateful for the financial partnership of Moments of Hope Church in this important life-changing ministry in our community. Thanks for listening to Moments of Hope. I'm Jen Houston, and with me is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Jen. It's great to be with you. In this morning's e-devotion, you gave us some really good counsel about how rejection is often God's way of protecting us. Will you share some of those thoughts with our listeners today? Well, I will, Jen. And the phrase in its pithy form is rejection is God's protection. Um, I have said it to myself many times because the truth is the acid rain of rejection is one of life's most painful moments. Mm -hmm. Uh, It causes an erosion of your soul like nothing else. Again, we were created to be in community, to be in relationship with other people. And when somebody we really care about uh, rejects us or a job that we really love, uh, we get fired from, um, the pain of that overcomes our lives and we start to feel like we're worthless and not meaningful and we just want to give up. At some point, some people even think about suicide because they have been rejected so badly. And I have had to learn, as I'm sure you have as well, that if God is sovereign and he's overseeing everything in our lives, and if Romans 8.28 is true, that all things work together for our good and God's glory for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, if we trust him, we've surrendered our lives to him, then rejection is his protection. That there must be something he was protecting us from, something that he knows about that we didn't know about, and we can then surrender our lives to him, keep moving forward, not giving up hope, and believing that there's another door that he's going to open for us that will be even better for us in our lives. This is so good. His ways are not our ways. And this one actually reminds me of your Davidism that says people make lousy gods. So when we really feel rejection in the next level is betrayal, Mm. it can be so painful. Yeah, betrayal is the ultimate negative of rejection because it's a person that we know well. It's a person we've allowed into our closest, most intimate Mm -hmm. relationship. And when they reject us and they betray us, it causes a specially hard pain in our lives. But on the other hand, as I look at the Bible, practically every major biblical character who was used mightily by God underwent a serious betrayal and rejection. Rejection from Moses to his you know, brother Aaron and Miriam, his sister, hmm. to King David. A lot of people think the person in Psalm 55 he's referring to there as the one who betrayed him, the one whose speech was smoother than butter, could have been Jonathan, hmm. that close intimate covenant friend for how else did Saul find out where David was hiding in those caves? They are so removed from everything, so hard to find anything. And yet Saul went directly to where David was. The only way he could have known was by Jonathan telling Saul where David was, a a betrayal. And Paul had a guy named Demas that betrayed him. And of course, Jesus had Judas as well. So Mm -hmm. betrayal is a part of life. It's Mm -hmm. part of a relational equity that we have here. And it's a way to remind 
remind us all that rejection is God's protection, and even with the betrayal, God had to get us out of a relationship that was ultimately painful for us. Well, trust God. At the bottom, at the end of the day, what I'm hearing is trust God, no matter what rejections come our way. I so good. I don't know where else you land, Jen. Uh, you trust God, and then you believe that rejection is God's protection. He's got some reason that he wanted you out of that relationship, out of that job, out of that situation, and he has good for your life. So good. Thank you so much, David. Thank you, Jen. And everyone, if you'd like to receive from me a written daily Moment of Hope, go to momentsofhopechurch.org. You can subscribe there. They'll arrive in your inbox every morning at 7 a.m. From my heart to yours to begin your day with a moment of hope. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. Today's message is from our Sunday morning worship service, and you can be a part of our service each Sunday morning at both 9 and 11 o'clock, in person or by going to momentsofhopechurch.org. While you're online, be sure to sign up for David's daily Moments of Hope, delivered every morning to your inbox. Also, check out David's weekly Hopecast. They're both free and available through our website. Again, that web address is momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston asking you to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Jerusalem.